The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you open it up as we begin a series through the life of Abraham, the life of Abraham. Our, our time together will be centered um, um, from this morning on chapter 12, um, but we will, we will begin reading in chapter 11. The man Abraham is arguably one of the most important figures in all of human history. Uh, he certainly is one of the, the most important in the Bible. I think you would have a, a strong argument to say that he is the most important figure in the Old Testament um, in, in what God was doing and is doing in forming a, a people for himself. Just um, so that you know, our pattern over these coming weeks will look um, differently than what is our normal practice. Um, we, we spend uh, the majority of our time together in um, the New Testament, working verse by verse through books of the Bible. We do not neglect the Old Testament. Normally, when we finish a, a New Testament book, we'll go and, and do um, a portion of the Old Testament as we preach through books of the Bible in the New Testament. If you're doing uh, the proper job in that, you're preaching the Old Testament as you do it. Um, but Old Testament books, like Genesis, um, by their, their nature are narrative passages. Um, that's, that's very different than, say, an epistle, like we just got finished working through in Philippians, or what we're getting ready to work through when we finish this up in First um, Timothy. Uh, in, in epistles, the nature of the way that they are written sort of um, leads us in our, in our preaching to, to, to f- focus uh, sort of in, in detail, in, in sentences and phrases and clauses and words. When you approach narrative passages, though... Um, your, your approach to them is, is necessarily different. This is a story. It's a true story, uh, but it is a story. And so in our time together, we will approach it this way. And so each week where we might, in a, in a, in a New Testament epistle, we might cover one verse, two verses, three verses. Each week, we're going to probably cover a full chapter um, together. Now, there's, there's um, no pressure to do that. There's no reason why we have to do that. We, we don't follow any sort of preaching schedule that's dictated by somebody else. Um, but that's, that's sort of uh, our plan as it stands now to cover a, a chapter a week. Um, but that may, may look differently as, as we move through it. Um, but we do want to keep the story moving um, because it is just that. It's a, it's a narrative passage. It's a, it's a story. So what that means is, is that, that there are probably um, portions where we, we may not cover in detail. And so you may be sitting there thinking, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And I'm with you. Um, probably the, the, the hardest thing in preaching is, 
what is edited out. Um, and so just my encouragement to you is um, to do your, your own study and your own, own digging in these, these chapters. You know where we're headed each week. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, up through chapter 25. So you know where we're headed. And so um, I would in, encourage you in that. So um, just be ready. It's a little different than we usually do, but just, but just be ready as we um, work our way through um, these chapters together. This morning, Genesis chapter 12, um, but we'll start in Genesis 11, um, verse 27, and then read down through the end of chapter 12. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Isech. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. 
Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the beginning of the story of this man, Abram, a man whose name will eventually be changed to Abraham. I would ask your grace in my preaching until we get to that point. I will probably call him Abraham, though that's not his name, it's Abram. But that's hard to do. Um, But this is his story. This is the beginning of his story. This is the story of God's calling on his life. As Jacob mentioned, it's important that we place this story in the right place in history. This comes right after what we see in the previous chapter, which is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was where the people of the earth attempted to make a great name for themselves, to elevate themselves to the same level of God, and to to build for themselves a, a tower that would reach into the heavens. This was emblematic of the state of the world. The world at this point in redemptive history is increasingly wicked. Wickedness has been the, 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 the case for humanity since the fall. We saw immediately after the fall a, a fratricide where a brother kills brother. We see the, the earth growing increasingly more wicked to the point to where God had had enough and destroys the whole earth except for one man and his family, Noah. Now in the years and generations after Noah, now the earth again has grown increasingly wicked. That's what we see in the Tower of Babel, the state of humanity and their um, rejection of God as supreme. And so here we are wondering what is it that God will do now with wicked creation? He's already destroyed the world once, and he made a promise. Wouldn't do it again. So what is it that God is going to do with wicked humanity? Well, God shows us in the life of this man, Abram. Instead of condemning the world to judgment. 
God instead chooses this man, makes a covenant with this man to bless this man and through this man to bless every single family in the world. To bless all of humanity. What God does in this man is begins a process of redemption that will find its ultimate culmination in Jesus Christ and His redemptive work on the cross. In the middle of darkness, God steps in with His grace. We learn that this man Abram is living in a place called Ur. Ur was a a dark and pagan place. Ur is Babylonia. It's, It's paganism. It's full of the worship of false gods. It's full of darkness. It's full of wickedness. If if you just looked at the world and you see Ur, you would think in Ur there would absolutely be nothing there that would attract God. Yet it was from this place that God calls Abram. Here's what we want to see this morning from the text. We want to see three things. There's a lot we can see, but we're going to focus on three things. The person, the promise, and the problem. The person, the promise, and the problem. We know very little about Abram before God's call to him to go to the land that God would eventually show him. We don't know much. But God's Word does tell us a little bit about him. Specifically, God's Word tells us about his family. This is chapter 11, verse 27. It's the first place we we meet him. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. So what do we learn about Abram to begin with? We learn about his family. We learn who his father is. So what do we we know? We know who his father is, and we know where he lives. Well, what does that tell us about Abram? It tells us that Abram was not only born in a city that was filled with the worship of false gods, but he was born into the family of idolaters. Now, Genesis 11 doesn't tell us that, but we, we do um, learn that in Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the peoples, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram, this man that God chooses out of a wicked, idolatrous city, comes from a wicked, idolatrous family. Abram is not from a God-fearing home. Now, there, are, there is another verse in the Scriptures that says that, that uh, Terah and Abram and his family were God-fearers. They were God-worshippers. Now, there is some uh, portions of the timing there that, that I'm unsure about. They, they certainly were after God had made this call to, to them. 
But if at the time they were both God-fearers and idolaters, which are synchronistic, um, then they're they're still an idol-worshiping family. The reality is, in Genesis 11, at this point, there's a good chance that Abraham himself is an idolater, worshiping the gods that his father worships. Yet, into this dark city of Ur, into this idol-worshiping home, God steps in. And out of nowhere, for no seeming reason, God chooses Abram. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, I guess God just really didn't have a better option than Abram. Abram would be the best option he had, so he chose Abram. Well, if you're thinking that, you would be wrong. We're introduced to a man in Genesis chapter 14. We'll get there in a few weeks. That's named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a God-fearer. He's a a contemporary of, of Abram, meaning he's living in the same time as Abram. If God was going to look on the earth and choose a man from whom to bring the the Messiah that would bless the world, you would think that God would look down and He would pick somebody like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a God-fearer. Melchizedek was a priest of God. In uh, Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus himself is compared to Melchizedek, meaning that Melchizedek was a, a Jesus-like figure, a Messiah-like figure in the Old Testament. Out of all the people in the world, God would have looked, looked down in, in our minds and said, this man Melchizedek, he's a man that, that worships me. He's a man that loves me. He's a, he's a priest of Mine. He's a man that most people would think that's who God would choose. But no, God doesn't choose Melchizedek. God chooses Abram in a dark place, in a dark family. I don't know about you, but this... This gives me great encouragement. It gives me great encouragement that God chooses the least likely. It gives me great encouragement that God chooses us not based on who our families are. Not based on how articulate we are. Not based on how strong our faith is. That God can still use you. As a matter of fact, if that is you, you're precisely the kind of person that God is looking for. You're exactly the kind of person that God uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27, 28, and 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not 
to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what God does in Abram. Now, we stand on this side of history, and we are looking back into the life of Abraham. And we're looking at Abraham as this incredible model of faith. And we read in the scriptures in uh, you know, Hebrews chapter 11 of this, this great hall of fame of faith that, that lifts up Abraham. And I think in a lot of ways, we have mythologized Abraham into this figure of perfection. Well, that's far from the truth. We see that in this chapter. God chose Abram not because of who Abram was, but because of who God is. He is the almighty sovereign God that does as he pleases, chooses whom he will, and uses the least likely for his glory. That's what we see in the person of Abram. So God calls him. He calls him out of a dark place. He calls him out of a dark family. And the word of God comes to him, and God makes Abram a promise. Chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Out of nowhere, God steps in. And he calls Abraham to to pick up and to leave, to pick up and to go. And in it, God makes a series of promises a sevenfold promise of blessing. Seven promises of blessing in these verses. The first, God says, I will show you. You, you see the, the repetition of these by this phrase, I will. I will show you where to go. Secondly, I will make you a great nation. Thirdly, I will bless you. Fourthly, I will make your name great. As Jacob said, the irony is real here. And it's intentional. Well, what happened at the Tower of Babel? What was man trying to do? Man was trying to elevate themselves. And the scriptures tell us so that they could make a name for themselves. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the name of a single person who laid a stone at the Tower of Babel? Not one. But here we are, thousands and thousands of years later, in Calera, Alabama, taking 12 weeks to learn about Abraham. What a good reminder for us. If you seek to make a name for yourself, you will be forgotten. But if you humble yourself before the Lord and you obey him, he will lift you up. I will make your name great. That's the fourth blessing. Fifth, I will make you a blessing. 
Six, I will bless those who bless you. And seventh, I will bless the whole earth through you. A sevenfold promise of blessing. This is not um, coincidence. This is intentional. In biblical numerology, the word the, the number seven represents completion or perfection. Seven days of creation. It was complete and perfect creation here. God makes a sevenfold blessing to, to Abram. A, a complete, a perfect, a sea of blessing from God. And God is clear in these promises that it is Him who will do the blessing. I will do this, says the Lord. I will do this. I will show you where to go. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will bless the whole earth through you, Abram. I am ready and I am able to do these things for you and through you, Abram. This is God's promise to him in this call for him to go to the land that God would show him. There's also a, a symmetry here in these uh, promises of blessing where the, the first are personal blessings given to Abram. Abram, I will show you the land. Abram, I will make you a great nation. Abram, I will bless you and I will make your name great. These are personal blessings. But God doesn't just stop there. God says not only that, but I'm making global blessings through you, Abram. I will bless the whole world through you. I will make you a blessing to the world. I will bless those, any of them, anybody that blesses you, I will bless. I will bless the whole earth through you. In the New Testament, Paul rightly identifies these promises as the gospel. That this promise given to Abram is the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that's exactly what God has in mind as he calls Abram out of a dark place and out of a dark family to go to a land that he would show him. And in his going, God saying, I will be faithful to do these things through you. Because ultimately what God is doing is he's not just redeeming Abram out of a dark city and a dark family. God is redeeming the whole world through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise of the gospel. Through you, Abram, I will bless the whole world. But these blessings are contingent, aren't they? And that's the, the way the language is written in the verse. Verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2, and I will make. God's blessings, these promises, 
were dependent on Abram's obedience. If you go, Abram, to where I show you, then I will do these things, is what God says. And so what does Abram do? Abram goes. He goes. Verse 4, so Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. This call to Abram to go to a land that God would show him, these promises of all that God would do, comes to Abram. And so Abram goes. And Abram takes his wife. And Abram takes his nephew. And Abram takes his possessions. And he goes. He leaves. To go to this land. He doesn't know where he's going. He's trusting the Lord that He will show him. He takes all of his possessions. And he goes. Now some would say, why is Abram taking all of these possessions with himself? Why why is he taking everything? Why is he taking um, all that he had gathered, all these people, all these, these possessions? Why is he taking all of these possessions? When the Lord God calls, you just go and you, you leave it all behind. Shouldn't he have trusted God to provide? Well, I think it's a better sign that he takes all he has. Because what that indicates for Abram is that this is a one-way ticket. There's no going back. There's nothing back there in Ur. There's nothing back there in Haran to draw him back. He's taking all he has with himself and he's, he's trusting the Lord and where the Lord leads. And so we get this, this travel itinerary of Abram as he gets to the land of Canaan and where he goes. The Canaanites are there. They're there, meaning that Abram doesn't, he doesn't march in and take possession of the land. As, as a matter of fact, God's promise to Abram isn't even that Abram gets the land. It's that his descendants get the land. And so what does Abram do in this land? Well, he pitches his tent and he builds an altar. He pitches his tent and he builds altars. He continues in obedience and he responds with worship. Here's what I love about this, this picture of Abram Pitching a tent, but building an altar. Is a, a tent is temporary. 
An altar is permanent. Where He dwells is temporary. But where He worships and where He declares the name of the Lord, that's permanent. And that's exactly what we see take place in history. Because as as Joshua comes into the land, he takes the exact same route that Abram takes. The exact same places where Abram has built an altar. When Jacob comes into the land, he goes in the exact same places. Church, this is a, a beautiful picture of what God calls us to. He calls us to, to pitch tents, but to build altars. To an obedience that views our place in this world as temporary and our worship as permanent. Our place in this world and our possessions as temporary, but our worship as permanent. This is not our promised land. This is not our home. What we have here should just be tents. Things that won't last. But our worship of God is permanent. From generation to generation. And for all of eternity. So this is what Abram does. He goes in faith. He goes in obedience follows the call of the Lord, trusts in the word of the Lord, gathers his stuff, and begins to journey. He gets into Canaan, and the Lord speaks, this is the land that I will give you. And there, he worships the Lord, he builds an altar, he pitches his tent. He moves on, builds an altar, pitches his tent. Until there's a problem. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. I'm going to be real real honest with you. I never really understood this until I was in Africa. Because we think about a famine or we think about a drought, and we think a little more difficult to get what we want at Publix. Right. I mean, we, we, in our mind, we're thinking, you know, the, the toilet paper shortage of 2020. Like, we'll make it through, but it's a little difficult. You know, we really want some peanut butter. We got to go three or four stores, we'll find a thing of peanut butter. For us, I think that's sort of famine or, or drought. And this, this particular verse came to life in a couple of ways. The first is a a drought, a famine. It's life and death in where we were in Africa. You know why? Because there's no Publix. Each family has their piece of land and they cultivate that land. They plant that land to grow the food that they eat. That's it. That's it. You meet with a, a pastor and uh, when we were doing pastoral interviews and say, I say, what, what, do you, what do you do to provide for your family? They would say, I'm a digger. A digger, that's, that's a farmer digging the soil. I'm a digger. So I, I asked Chris, who was the missionary, I said, when they say they're a digger, I understand that they mean they're working their land 
I said, are they working their land primarily to produce the food for their family to eat? Or are they working the land to produce food to take to sit on the side of the road to sell? So that they make money and then they can go and buy what they need. Primarily, these people are working the land to provide for themselves food. To provide for themselves food. And so they grow beans, they grow corn. They grow these things so that their family has food to eat. There's no refrigeration. They dry it. They dry the corn. They dry the beans. They dry it out. They hope that they grow enough to provide for their family through the dry season or through the... There's no real winter. I mean, you're on the equator there. Um, But they they hope they make it through. I mean, there were regular questions like... uh, Chris would interact with a guy. How, How was your harvest... Not much rain. Is your crops doing okay? Why? Because it's life and death for them. It's life and death. The other way this, this came to life to me is because Egypt's in Africa and is fed by the Nile. And we, we got to see the Nile multiple occasions, drove over the Nile, went to the Nile, went right to the edge of the Nile. Could have stuck my hand in the Nile, but I was worried about disease, so I didn't touch the Nile. But watch the hippos play in the Nile. And you learn that this, this place is lush. I mean, it is greener than you could ever imagine. Everything is green. Everything is green. Because that's, that's what that sort of water source does, a, a river like the Nile. It, it's... it's, it's it brings a fertility to the land. So there's a famine in the land, severe famine. So Abram went to Egypt, verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, they'll kill me. They'll let you live. They'll say, you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that My life may be spared for your sake. A lie, sort of a half lie. She's his half sister, but lie. And Abram entered Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, Why is it that you have done this to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Things go well for Abram until there's a problem. But the problem isn't a famine. The problem is Abraham's faith was replaced by fear. That's the problem. The problem isn't that there's a famine in the land. 
The problem is the, the faith that Abraham had in God was replaced by fear. Fear of God's provision in a famine. And fear of Pharaoh. And so Abram stops trusting God. That's what this part of the story is. It's Abram's failure. This isn't going to be the only place he fails. But he fails. And what does he do? He leaves the land. He hatches a plan. It was not a good plan. It was a really bad plan. And Abraham is distrusting. And he is dishonest. And in this moment, Abram stops trusting the word of God. God had made him promises. Abram, if you go to the land I will show you, I will bless you. Abraham stops trusting in the promises of God. He stops trusting in God's specific promises to him. Abram doesn't trust God in the famine. The question for us is, do we trust God in the dark times? Do we trust God in the hard times? There's, we don't have a, a, a lot of time left. There's some, there's some disagreement. And quite frankly, I really don't know. And I don't, don't know that it matters, but there's some di- disagreement as to the, the timing of Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Because Genesis 11, you see Abram leaving Ur, and it says to go to Canaan with his father and his possessions and his nephew and his brother and his wife and They leave Ur and they they are headed to Canaan, but they stop in Haran and they live there. And while they are there, there's great blessing to them. And then Haran dies and Abram goes on to Canaan. And so the question that, that people debate is, did God's call to Abram come when he was in Ur? And the leaving of Abram's family and, his, and all of their stuff to go to Haran, did that happen because God had called Abram to go? Or did God's call to go to, to Canaan come when they were in Haran? Does that make sense? There's some disagreement there. And I don't, I don't know. It's, there's not a lot of clarity there. I don't know that it matters except that God said, leave your family, leave your kindred, leave all your stuff and go. And if that came in Ur, that's not what Abram did. He left with his family. He left with his father. He left with his father's house. And he did not get to Canaan. He stopped in Haran. But if that's the case, it's one thing to trust God in Haran when there is great blessing. It's another thing to trust God in Canaan when there is famine. And Abram doesn't trust God. Instead, he hatches a plan. He tries to take it into his his own abilities. And he goes to Egypt. 
That, that would have been the natural thing to do. That's what everyone would have done. Everyone would have went to Egypt because Egypt's the breadbasket of the world. But there's not a single mention of Abram seeking God in that decision. There's not a single mention of God saying, go to Egypt. As a matter of fact, what did God say? Go to Canaan. And when Abraham's faith is tested in the famine, he fails. Faith is always followed by famine. Faith, real faith, is always tested. How do I know that? James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Faith is always tested. And Abram fails the test. But God is faithful. And he's faithful to his promises even when we are unfaithful to him. This is why it's so important to understand the truth of Abram's life, which is that it was his faith that was counted to him as righteousness, not his righteousness that was counted to him as righteousness. Three chapters later, God makes a covenant with Abram. And this time, the covenant is not dependent on Abram's obedience, but fully on the promises of God. Genesis 15, 6, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Because Abram is a failure. He's not a righteous man. But God is gracious. And what we see in Abram is a picture of the gospel. That God in his sovereignty chooses whom he will, not because of what they have done or because of who their family is. And God makes a promise of blessing. What we see in Abraham is what we see in the gospel. That in the gospel, just as it was with Abraham, God is calling us to follow him. Come and follow me. That's the call of Jesus. What we see in the gospel is what we see in Abram. And that is God calling us to obey his word. What we see in the gospel is what we see in Abram. And that is God being gracious when we fall short. What we see in the gospel is what we see in Abram. And that is that there is a righteousness that is granted to us, not on the basis of our perfection, but on the basis of His faithfulness and our faith. Because every single one of us have the exact same problem as Abram. And famine will come. And the testing of our faith will come and we will fail. The question for us is, will we trust the word of God? Or will we 
like Abram, seek to solve it on our own. Well, God takes care of Abram. He afflicts Pharaoh's house with plagues in such a way that it is clear that it is because of Sarai. We don't know why. We don't know how. That's what happens. But there's some, there's some serious consequence to this decision. There's some reaping of what Abram has sold, sown because of this decision. He gave his wife away. You think she handled that well? No. That's what happens when we stop trusting in the Lord and we look to solve it on our own. He is faithful. He is faithful. But there's consequences to our sin. So what do we see in Genesis chapter 12? We see the call for us to trust God. The call for us to trust the gospel. The call for us to lean on Jesus. The call for us to have faith in the middle of a famine. The call for us to rejoice that it's our faith that is counted to us as righteousness and to rejoice even greater that God is faithful to grant us faith. That God is faithful to his promises. Just as he was faithful to Abraham to bless him and to make him a blessing and to bring about the gospel through his family lineage to bless the whole world through Jesus Now we are recipients of that blessing and we're called into the exact same calling of God to trust him and to go where he leads and to follow him in faith. God, would you help us? Would you help us follow you as you lead? To trust in you, to trust in your word, trust in the gospel. Even when famine comes. But more than anything, Father, thank you for being faithful to your promises to Abraham and in extension your promises to us. When we are weak, you are strong. When we are sinful, you are righteous. And you have by your grace through our faith counted the righteousness of Jesus for us, the unrighteous. God, would you find in us a willing heart to obey and to trust? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.